Well, we're in a series that we have entitled Man at Work, looking at uh, the life of Jesus through the eyes of uh, uh, Mark and uh, seeking through his gospel to, to understand and know uh, what uh, Jesus was all about. Uh, we have come to the place after celebrating his life and death and burial, of course, and resurrection uh, at the communion table. And so we recognize Jesus was successful in his work. And yet we come to a place and a text that reminds us that uh, Jesus' earthly ministry was not one that was always, per se, a success, one that seemingly uh, had struggles at times, not because he was ineffective, but because of the lack of faith and belief in the lives of the people around him. We've seen Jesus at work serving people, healing those around him, delivering them from their ailments and even demons, and his ongoing struggle with religious leaders, and we come to a place in our text today where we see another sign that is a miracle and a statement that will revolutionize the world as it knows. And as a result of that, we will see what we call a turning point in this great gospel. So let's look at our text this morning, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look to what the Lord has to say to us today through the words of Mark. It says the following, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? The blind man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and the blind man saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And the disciples told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Father God, we come before you. We ask that you would bless not only the reading of your word, but Lord, the teaching of it. I pray that our hearts would be open, that we would be reminded of the great admonition that was given to Peter to set our minds not on earthly things, not on the things of men, but solely on the things of God. Lord, it is when we do that we will see clearly your plans for us and where you will have us to go and what you will have us to do. So, Lord, I pray that today we would turn our eyes onto Jesus so that we can see clearly 
as we go through this thing called life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our text today, we come to a turning point. A turning point within the text. If you notice the artwork that we put together, there are two uh, street signs, if you will, as Jesus paves the way back to God. We have in Mark 1 through chapter 8, the servant who rules. Jesus has been serving people. Everywhere Jesus goes, the crowd has followed, and Jesus has met the needs like a humble servant that he is. But we come to the point in the middle part of chapter 8 where there's a second road sign that comes up. It's the division of this great gospel. And from this point, we see the ruler who serves. And you say that's a play on words, but we are going to see in the weeks to come and for the rest of our time how Jesus Christ is the ruler. He is the Messiah. And it hinges on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And so we come today in this gospel to a turning point, a time and a point in time, if you will, that seems to change the direction of where we've been going up to this point. If you will, this is the hinge of the gospel. It is where we go from one side looking at what Jesus has done now to the other side, if you will, of that hinge that holds this whole book together. Turning points have been rightly defined as a time and a moment of significant change within the life and circumstances of an individual. And we see that in all facets of life. We see turning points in sporting events, a moment when a team may be on the verge of victory and that turning point moves them to a point of defeat. We see turning points within wars and armed conflicts where it seems like there's a stalemate going on and yet one battle, one moment in that war changes the tide and stems, stems the tide of where that war was going. We love the turning points in movies where we hear the orchestra in the background on the soundtrack, if you will, bringing it to a climax, the point where, if you will, the main character sees what he needs to see or the point that he finds himself within the storyline. We see turning points in our relationships with other people. I remember the time where I knew that Amanda was not going to simply be a girlfriend of mine, but she would be something far more. It was a moment. It was a moment where I knew things were going to be different. We have turning points in our spiritual lives as well. As a 14-year-old boy, I will never forget a phone call that was made to me. It was from my youth pastor at the time who wanted to take me out for some lunch, and I can still remember almost to the word the words that he shared with me because it's a turning point in my life. Those words that were shared with me have been stuck on me as a result of it because my life would never be the same as a result of those words. We live lives in all facets and venues that at times will have turning points. Some are for the good. And we look back with great admiration to those moments in time that changed our lives. But I would be remiss not to say that turning points aren't always good. 
There are turning points in our lives where a decision is made, a circumstance takes place, where everything falls apart. And we look back to those moments with great dread and great struggle. We come to our text today where we see now for the last 13 weeks in our study of this gospel that Christ has come onto the scene almost out of nowhere and in no amount of time crowds are following him and they're growing by the thousand and his ministry has caught fire. It has caught the attention of not only the crowd but the chief priest and the religious leaders of his day who now are hell-bent on stopping this upstart and this grassroots movement because it has taken the spotlight away from them. In Mark chapter 8, verse 10, we are told that Jesus leaves the area that is just south of Capernaum, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, to head north to the north tip of the Sea of Galilee to a city called Bethsaida. It is here that we see something that we must examine as a turning point. You see, in, chapter, in the first chapters, 1 through 8, we see Jesus on the move, but his ministry will look very different from this point on. From this part of the text, we will see that Jesus, once and for all, will leave the area of Galilee. The majority of his ministry had been done in the area of Galilee, and from this point on, Jesus will move away from it altogether. The second thing that we will see, or if you will, we won't see, is any more interactions with the chief priests and the religious leaders. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, no more discussion, no more talking, we're done. I've had enough of you, and I'm not going to waste any more of my time debating these issues with you. The next thing that we see from this point on is that Jesus will give very little attention to the crowd. In the first eight chapters, we've seen that Jesus has developed a, quite a relationship with the crowd in ministering to them, feeding them in great numbers on two occasions, and of course healing them on numerous occasions and driving out spirits. He no longer will spend the majority of his time on that. In fact, the majority of his time will be spent on preparing and training his disciples. And it's here in these chapters to come that Jesus Christ will make abundantly clear through his numerous statements about his impending suffering and death on the cross. One final thing that we will see change from this point on is Jesus will no longer bounce from place to place, but we will see him on a deliberate and straightforward path to Jerusalem. This is a turning point, and it will un un undoubtedly and understandably catch the disciples off guard. It's going to rattle them, as we're going to see in our text, to the core, and that's what turning points do in our lives. They cause us to pause for a moment and examine our motivations, to examine the direction we're heading in and the plans that we have the disciples, no doubt, are starting to wonder, where is this following of Jesus going to end up? What is his end game? And Jesus begins, if you will, to turn up the proverbial heat in their lives to bring them to that turning point. So let's examine this turning point this morning, first of all, by examining a miracle involving a blind man. By examining a miracle involving a blind man. You say, how does Peter's confession 
and this healing of a blind man work together. I'm hoping to show you that this morning in our short time that we have together. But we are told in verse 22 that Jesus comes to the area of Bethsaida. And it tells us in the text right away, we're not given any reason on why Jesus is there, but we are told right away that some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. We don't know anything about this man, nor do we know anything about the friends that bring him. Most commentaries believe that this man was so, if you will, um, locked into his ailment, thinking that there was no healing or anything, that it was the faith of his friends that brought him. All we can ascertain really about this man is that he seemingly lost his sight sometime later in life. But little else is known. From the activity of the friends, we can ascertain and, and understand that this man, uh, or these people, led their friend to Jesus because they recognized something about Jesus and had heard that Jesus had been able to heal people of all kinds of maladies and ailments. And it's here that we are able to get our first lesson from this healing. While we don't know much about the man or the friends that bring him, I want us to see something that is of great importance to us this morning, and that is that interceding for others is significant. As we look at this miracle with a blind man, we see that interceding for others is significant. Now please don't move too quickly this morning away from this verse. I desire in my heart's desire is to be cut to the heart by the love that these people have with regards to their friends. Like a good friend, they had saw their blind brother in need. And like good friends, they sought to alleviate the pain and trouble that this man had as a result of his blindness. Sadly, in our world today, many of us are so selfish, so focused in on our own issues and struggles, that the last thing that we think about is another's pain and suffering. What a model these people, unnamed people, give us as believers. At Village Bible Church, we have a mission statement, and our second and third part of the mission statements are to love each other to the point of sacrifice and to love our neighbors to the point of action. These friends live that out. They live it out because just like Christ, their heart was filled, as we learned last week, with compassion. They looked at the world around them and saw a friend who was struggling. And they wanted to do all they could to move to change that. Now I want you to recognize that they simply did not just pray for this man. They simply just didn't say, well, I hope he gets better. But they were moved to action. We as a people must be moved to action when we see the hurts and pains around us. But what does this interceding look like? What, what is it all about? Intercession literally speaks of one who fills the gap. One who comes on the behalf of another and closes the breaches in that individual's life. An intercessor is one who looks at the world around them 
and ask the question, what can I do to help? That's what these friends did. They saw their friend who was hurting, and it wasn't good enough for them to sit idly by and watch their friend go through life hurting. They brought him to Jesus. Write this down in your outlines. Intercession involves, first of all, bringing people to Jesus. It says, without any flashy words, without any need to dissect the Greek language, they brought the blind man to Jesus. If we would just be a people, and I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you, if we would be a people who would get off our rears and off the sidelines, licking our own wounds, we would have the ability to look at the world around us and see a world of hurting and broken people. When was the last time you went to your workplace or to your school with the agenda of saying, who needs Jesus? Who's hurting? Who needs a kind word? Who needs a helping hand? Now please hear me, the reason why we do this isn't simply just to alleviate pain, but these people brought him to Jesus because Jesus was the only answer. When we begin to look at the world around us, it shouldn't just be, I want to help hand out a cup of cold water, as wonderful as that is, but I want to hand over a cup of cold water and remind them of the living water that is found only in Jesus Christ. These people looked at their world and saw hurts and struggles and had one goal in mind. And might it be our agenda this week with this goal in mind, Lord, allow me to get as many people as close to you as possible. Because that's the only answer. That's the only hope that we have. But notice it isn't just getting people close to Jesus. Notice it says that they begged him to touch this blind man. They implored Jesus. They beseeched him in some of the older translations. They wanted Jesus to come, and this man wasn't going to be able to find Jesus on his own. He was a blind man. But these people could. And so they find Jesus, and they beg for Jesus. Jesus, touch our friend. Jesus, heal our brother. Jesus, come and address the needs that my brother has. Can I speak quite frankly this morning? And that's a rhetorical question, because I'm going to assume I can. To an area that we as a body need to grow in. And my prayer is that my words will be taken with the right spirit, first of all, judging my own actions before I judge the actions of others. We at Village Bible Church do a lot of praying here, and for that I am incredibly thankful. We pray during our worship services and dedicate time to that in each of our adult Bible fellowships. A good portion of our time in small groups is, is lifting up prayers and requests. Even within our Sunday school classes and student ministries, prayer is a vital part of our ministry. And it should be, because the Lord says that his house is to be a house of prayer. But let me ask you this. How many times are our prayer times filled with requests about ourselves? Lord, help me with this. Lord, address this issue, address this malady, address this situation. And, and it becomes, 
a part of something that works for us as members of the body, that it's good to be a part of it. That's one of the blessings because we can pray for ourselves. And please understand me, the importance of uh, placing our requests before God, to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Please don't misunderstand this, that I'm not diminishing that. But have we not swung the pendulum too far in that direction? When was the last time that we as a church, whether in a small group or in an ABF or, or within uh, the prayer updates that come, that it wasn't so much based on our own health concerns and our own troubles, but that as one individual on behalf of another, addressing and intercessing for that individual? When was the last time we prayed for that coworker of yours, that lost friend or loved one? where we prayed and we begged Jesus with our brothers and sisters in faith to change that individual and to make them whole. One of the great reformers who worked in the nation of Scotland spoke this prayer, Lord, give me Scotland or I'll die. When was the last time that you said, Lord, give me the people at my workplace or I'll die, I'll shrivel up, I need them. I need them so that I can win them to you. How about the people in your neighborhood? There are blind people all around us who will never find Jesus on their own. And we need intercessors, people who will go before the Lord, not only in prayer, but then taking that individual and begging Jesus to heal them. How was the last time you begged for someone you know who doesn't know Christ, for Christ to touch them. We miss the intercession so often in our lives. The text tells us in here that Jesus takes the man after being implored by the friends, and he's led out of the village, the text says, in verse 23. And it says that Jesus does something a bit odd from a human perspective. It says that he spit on his eyes and then laid his hands on him. I was telling one of my small groups, I wish I would have known that. I was quite the spitter as a young kid. I could have said, Jesus did it. Why can't I? We don't know why Jesus does this. And there's a lot of, of speculation that the saliva had, uh, uh, had some medicinal use to it. I don't know why. But sometimes Jesus and sometimes our God does things that just doesn't make sense at times, and that's okay. Now it says that he took him out of the city, and there's a lot of speculation, why would Jesus take him out of the city? Some say, because of Matthew eleven twenty one that Jesus had, had pronounced on Bethsaida a divine judgment for their lack of belief. And as a result of that, that no longer would any miracles be done in those cities, Bethsaida being one. Another commentary said that Jesus was moving away from the crowd and another miracle and healing would rally the crowd once again to follow Jesus and that wasn't what Jesus desired, so he pulled him aside. Still others say that it was because of a personal benefit for the man who was blind, that having all this visual, if you will, commotion around this man when his eyesight would be restored would be far more than this man would be able to bear but we're not given the reason why. All we know is that Jesus leads this man to be alone with him. 
And as I said before, and it's of great importance that we are reminded of it, Jesus does his best work with people when we're alone with him. He spits on him, he puts his hands on him, and from that moment, the man is able to see. But as we'll see, unlike every other miracle, only part of his eyesight is restored. He looks to the city that's from a distance, and it says that he sees in verse 24, men, but they look like trees walking. Now we don't know why Jesus only restored his sight to a bare minimum or why he kept it a bit blurry, but we are told that he then for a second time touches this man's eyes at a later point and restores his sight altogether. And it's here that I'm reminded of a second lesson, and that is, is that healing can come in stages. And that's a good reminder for us. We aren't told by Mark why this man, or how this man responds to his sight being blurred. I wonder if he felt like it didn't take Jesus. I can see a little bit, but I can't see the whole. But by his silence, there seems to be a marked patience and trust that God would take care of the rest. A lot of us are struggling today, and we're wondering why God won't heal us. Might I add that it may be because God has healed us with one touch. And even though our lives are blurred, even though our lives seem out of focus, are we content to wait for God's second touch? We want God to fix our situations right away, to address them as soon as they come. But have we ever thought that in this text that God was allowing this time of blurred vision to be a time to grow the faith of the blind man? Some of us find ourselves walking around in a fog. We look at the world around us and the best that we can say is we see men like trees walking That's the best assessment we can give, and it's foggy, and it's blurry, and I don't understand the circumstances, God. And are we willing to wait and stay close to Jesus and wait for that second touch? It says, after this man had his sight restored, we see something of a command. A command is given which seems backwards to anybody's schools of thought. In verse 26, notice what the text says, that Jesus restores his sight in verse 25. He sees everything now clearly after this second touch. And it says that he was sent away to his home with the command, do not even enter the village. I don't know about you, but if I was to have my sight restored, I would want to tell everybody in the world, right? Hey, I can see. I met this guy, Jesus. My friends brought this man to Jesus. And and, and would you believe it? The guy spit in my face. He put his hands on me. And I could see a little bit, but not really all that good. And then he put his hands on me again. And my goodness, I can see you, man. And you're ugly. I can't believe it. Let me tell you about this, Jesus. That would be the natural response, right? We would be able to see, we would want to announce to the world that we are able to see and we would announce to the world who healed us. That's what's happened in all the other ones. But Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anybody, I want you to go home. Again, the reasons are numerous. 
But there's one thing that I want us to pull from that, and that is sometimes obeying God doesn't always make sense. The more I walk with my God, the more that I begin to understand this truth, that God's ways are higher than our ways. That God has a plan that is so far greater and vast than our own thinking. Now notice this guy seemingly does exactly what Jesus has for him. And we need to understand this morning that obedience is not always going to be easy. It's going to be tough at times. But if we want to please our God, we need to do what he says. I think I've shared this before, but one of the most frustrating times as a father I have with young children is when they say, I don't want to obey dad because that doesn't make sense. As if a five-year-old knows what makes sense in this world. No, just do it. I didn't ask for a conversation. I'm looking for action. And yet what God the Father sees in his son Tim Bidal is he says, I want you to do something. And my response is, yeah, but wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. From my vantage point, from my point of view, that seems odd to me. And some of you find yourself saying no to God, to the things of God, because in the world of man, God doesn't make sense. And we have forgotten the truth of that old Sunday school song, to trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You know, God doesn't give suggestions in his words. And a lot of us live as if these are suggestions. Oh, maybe I'll do them if it works out for me, if it fits my schedule, if it fits my way of life. But, brothers and sisters, he gives commands. It is here that Mark, and with no time, in lingering over this scene or following up with this man, moves to the next episode. And these are connected. We see the miracle of a blind man, and now we see a message from a bold man. A message from a bold man. We are told that Jesus has now moved to the north, about 25 miles to the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's on the north tip of the Sea of Galilee. And we're not told, uh, I'm sorry, it's not on the north tip, it's north of the Sea of Galilee. And we're not told why he's done so again. But it is here that Jesus asks a very important question that no doubt had become the elephant, if you will, in the room to the disciples. And the question is, why would Jesus now ask this? Why now, Jesus? I believe it's important that within this great confession, we understand where this confession is taking place. Look at where it takes place. It takes place in a city that's named after Herod, Philip. And Herod Philip was a man who served and, and reigned over that area. But it had been given a surname. And Josephus in his book, The Antiquities, says that the surname of Caesarea was given to pay homage to Caesar. And so what Herod was saying was, I'm a great leader, but there is none greater than Caesar. And we have to understand that during that time, worship of the emperor was becoming far more prevalent than it ever should have where they would worship the ruling Roman empires. And Herod says, I will make the city named after me have its surname for you, Caesar. 
because you are preeminent. And Jesus comes to this city and asks the question, hey, amidst a city that's named after two great leaders, who do you say that I am? What's the word that's going on? And the first question is a benign one. What are people saying about me? The second one will be the single greatest question that will ever be asked of men. The first one, let's start there. Who do people say that I am? In essence, Jesus is asking, what are people, what are you hearing about me from people? What's the buzz? And I wonder if the disciples were wondering the same thing. Who is this guy? Well, we know what the crowd was saying because the disciples begin to articulate it. And they say that, hey, some believe you to be John the Baptist. Others believe you to be Elijah or one of the prophets. And this seems somewhat right because Malachi 4 says that one would come. And he would prepare the people for the great Messiah who was going to come. But here's the problem. While it is wonderful for each of us to be a part of those great names, it would be a compliment for any one of us to be called Elijah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist. It is an just incredible demotion for Jesus. And that's where we see that the message of the cross and the message of Christ and the life of Christ cannot be based on others' theories. It cannot be based on others' theories. Public opinion showed a pretty high level of thought with regards to Jesus. Can I say today that we live in a world that thinks pretty highly of Jesus? Think about it for a moment. You ask even the greatest of agnostics and atheists who are some of the greatest men to have ever lived, and I can assure you, in the vast majority of people, Jesus' name will rise up. People will say that hate, the very thought of following Jesus day in and day out, would say of Jesus, he's a great teacher, he's a great philosopher. He was a wonderful innovator, a humble servant, one who gave some great teaching regarding life. They would put him amongst the pantheon of great men who's ever walked the earth. But can I tell you something? To speak of Jesus as a great teacher or great innovator or philosopher, while it may sound great for us, is an incredible demotion to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us of Jesus, it's not good enough to think of him as simply a thinker or a great servant. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things are held together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. We need to be very careful, brothers and sisters, that our world likes to say nice things about Jesus, but nice things about a great man aren't enough for our Lord and Savior. He is our King. He is the Alpha and Omega. Notice that it is built on our own testimony. It's not good enough just to know what people say, 
But after getting the results of public opinion, Jesus turns to them and he asks the question, who do you say that I am? Within the Greek uh, uh, translation there, the emphasis is on the word you. And what Jesus is asking is of the disciples, okay, that's great that those people think this, but what about you? And that question is being asked of every one of us today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Can I tell you even before we answer that question, that that will be the question that every man, woman, and child will stand before Jesus and answer on the day of judgment? And the response can't be, well, my mom and dad said you were the one. Or my pastor said you were the greatest. Jesus says, I don't care what your pastor said. I want to know what you say about me. Who do you say that I am? Peter responds as a spokesman for the disciples for the very first time. It would be one of many times in the time to come with a great confession of faith. He says, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You are the fulfillment of the patriarchs and the prophets. You are the redeemer. You are the rescuer of the people of Israel. This is what Peter thought when he said it, and he was right. But can I tell you that just like the blind man, while Peter had the answer right, he didn't have the whole answer. Because what Peter thought was going to take place was what many Israelites thought, and that was this Messiah was going to come and deal with a Roman issue, not a sin issue. That he would deal with a temporary kingdom and not an eternal kingdom. And it reminds us this morning that the message of Christ is not based on others' theories, but our own testimony. And brothers and sisters, it is built upon the plans of God. Notice what the text says. It says that Jesus began to teach them, in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It says in verse 32, he spoke this to them plainly. Peter would get up in a matter of a short time on the day of Pentecost from this point and announce to the people that by the hand of God the Father, Jesus was handed over, and with the help of cruel and corrupt and evil men, that they would hang Jesus on the cross, and it would be according to the predetermined plans of God. We need to understand that this is not by chance, this is not by some uh, draw of a card, but it is done by the very hands of God. Jesus had come, to not just live his life, but to give up his life and to be put on the cross. And it's here you would know that the disciples are now aware of Jesus' mission. But what happens? We see that while the plans of God have built this message, that the message can never be built upon the prerogatives of men. It's here that Peter takes Jesus and he takes him to the side, and it says that he began to rebuke him. The word there, rebuke, is the Greek word epitomio. It is one of the strongest words in the Greek language. And it carries with it the air of superiority. 
This word is only used twice in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 3 where it says Jesus rebuked the demons. And this is exactly what Peter is doing. He is giving him a tongue lashing. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings. And Jesus says, no way Jesus, it ain't going to happen. I'm not going to allow it to take place. I know you've said this is going to happen, but I'm not going to let it. And the reason why is because it doesn't fit the way I think it should be. And there are some of us that rebuke Jesus on an everyday basis. Jesus, I know what you've said, but I'm not going to do this. No, no, I will not. It doesn't fit. Jesus says, I want you to obey, and you say, I'm not going to. Like a little toddler, I'm putting my stake in the ground. I'm not going to do it. And it says that Jesus responds with the same response. He rebukes Peter. Peter, you're not talking right. And it's not that Peter is just speaking from a human perspective, but Jesus goes to the source of that. And can I add that when we disobey God and we say no to God, it isn't simply just us kind of saying, hey, I just don't like what we're doing here, but it comes from the well of who we are. Jesus says of Peter's words what my youth pastor used to say to us, that Peter spoke and it was from the pit and smelled like smoke. Peter's talking from the pit of hell. It's the same garbage and trash that the devil was trying to get Jesus to buy into on the, in the wilderness when he was being tempted. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. You can have this world. You can have all that it affords. Just don't go to the cross. Just bow down to me. Peter's saying, hey, Jesus, if you would just bow down to what I think needs to happen, if you would just bow down to my agenda, then I'll see to it that you can take care of this. And the absurdity of that. Because Peter will try to do this later on in the garden and he'll pull out his sword and he's going to attack for Jesus and he's going to fight for Jesus and the best thing that he can do is cut off a guy's ear. The pathetic nature of us when we think our agenda is stronger than the agendas of God. What an exchange. We'll get to it more and we'll invest some more time with this next week. But we've seen Peter now go from the thrill of victory now to a turning point to a great agony of defeat. Can you imagine the disciples at lunch after that encounter? Peter comes with his lunch tray and sits down, and the whole table's like, I don't want to be near you. Holy cow. Can you hear what Jesus called you? I don't want to be near you. But we'll see that will change. I want you to understand something that connects these, and I need to be done here, but a couple things and then just a couple action steps and we'll be done. What we see in Peter is what we see in the blind man. And what we see is a blurred vision as to what God wants done. What Peter and the disciples need is a second touch of God. An ongoing touch. It's not enough just for Peter uh, to have Jesus around him. Peter needs more than that, and we do as well. Can I tell you that Peter doesn't get it on the day of Jesus' arrest or during the Last Supper? He doesn't get it when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. It isn't when Jesus goes to the cross. Peter still doesn't get it. Can I add that Jesus or that Peter doesn't get it? The disciples don't get it even after the resurrection. At Christ's ascension. 
But it isn't until that great and faithful day, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God falls upon the disciples, that Jesus can stand and speak authoritatively to the Christ who was crucified but now sits at the right hand of the Father. And it's from that second touch that Peter and the disciples are changed. Just like that blind man. They're looking through a glass dimly, Paul says. But because of the Holy Spirit, now they could see clearly. A couple action points and we'll close. First thing I want you to remember as we go away from this text is, number one, be patient in your sanctification. Some of you are like me, and you want all the answers now. You want everything figured out right away. Tell me what the end point is, and God doesn't give us the end point. One of the questions in our small group lesson this week was, how was life different for you now than what you thought it was going to be growing up? Can I tell you in all honesty and humility, I never, I never, I never could imagine that I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. Never! And I'm not saying as a young kid. I'm saying at 18, 19, 20 years of age, it would have never dawned on me. If someone would have said, you're going to be a pastor, I would have laughed at you. And so I need to understand, I don't see the end point. But what I know is this, that he who began a good work in me is faithful to see it to completion. And the only thing I need to know is what, what we're told by the writer of Hebrews, that I am to keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. And if I can see Jesus, then I don't need to know anything else. Some of you are wanting to know, when is that job going to come? Or when is that baby going to come? Or where is, uh, when is that child going to come back to us and come back to Christ? And when is that marriage going to be put back together? There's no answer for that. Only God knows. And what God wants you to know is be patient and keep your eyes on Him. Secondly, be correct in your proclamation. Be correct in your proclamation. We are quick to proclaim, and that's good. It was good for Peter to do so. But Peter didn't have all of the facts. And because of that, he was dangerous. Can I tell you there's a danger? The Bible says that many of us should be careful. In fact, not too many of us should be teachers. Because there's a judgment coming for us. And while it is of vast importance that we teach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, might I add that it is simply not just throwing a bunch of Bible verses at people, but it's knowing the gospel and knowing the beginning from the end and not selling something that sounds like the gospel or looks like the gospel. Can I just share one of the biggest things that I get from people, usually in an anonymous letter, is that people are upset that I don't do altar calls. Can I tell you why? Because the gospel is something that someone needs to count the cost to. That someone needs to understand and be able to articulate. And we offer that freely to all. But understand this, it can't happen in a 30-second soundbite. And I know some of you may disagree with me. While it is something that a child can grasp, it is something that needs to be walked through. And someone needs to deny themselves. We're going to learn in a week to take up the cross daily. We need to teach people the full and total gospel and what it involves. Peter missed that. The final thing is we need to be mindful of his instruction. How do we make sure that we live this life and live out this message clearly? We focus on the things of God, not on the things of men. 
So many of us have moved on already from this moment. Our Bibles are closed and we're already thinking about the Super Bowl later today and what we need to get done. Brothers and sisters, that's putting our minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. And let us stop and let us pause and let us allow God to speak to us before we move on. Let us get God's perspective on our lives before we put our own perspective on it. Let God speak to our lives before we speak to it. Let God speak to our decisions before we do. Because when we don't, our decisions will always trump God's. And it's in those decisions and it's in that life that we will live in a blur instead of seeing with great clarity as the blind man did the things of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. And Lord, I wish we had more time to spend on this. But Lord, I'm thankful for what you've taught us this morning. Lord, there's much that we need to learn. And it's here, Lord, that I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit who's interceding on our behalf like those great friends of that blind man. Your spirit intercedes for us. When we don't know how to pray, he's praying for us. When we don't know where to go, he's speaking to us. When we come to temptation and sin, he convicts us and leads us to righteousness. Oh, Lord, thank you for your spirit, for giving us clarity. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that are changed by your word, that grow up in it so that we can go and bring others to you. I pray, Lord, that we will grow up in your word so that we will recognize that even when things aren't going our way, that you're in control. That, Lord, that we would grow up into this word so that we would recognize and understand who you are and what your mission is here on earth. And what you have for us as co-mission partners with you. Lord, we can look at Peter and say, boy, why didn't he get it? Why did he get half the test right? But Lord, we would be reminded as well that there is so much of Peter in each and every one of us. And just like Peter, we need to continue to walk with you, to be touched by you, and to continually be changed by you. So, Lord, we go back to that spirit that we prayed for earlier. Fill us with that spirit so that we will not gratify the things of this world and the appetites of the flesh, but that we may live out the fruit of the spirit in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.